0: During Advent and Epiphany, we seem to read a certain set of words again and again and again, as it is written. The Gospel writers, especially Matthew and Luke, make connections between the events they are recounting and the laws, proclamations, prophecies, and even praise songs of the Hebrew Bible over and over and over. For the writers of Matthew and Luke, One of the most important things about Jesus is that he is the Messiah. Now the Messiah was an interpretation of disparate texts in the Hebrew Bible that originally referred to many different events, like when Cyrus of Persia allowed the Jews in Babylon to return to Judea and directed them to rebuild the temple. But under the pressure of invasion, conquest, and seemingly permanent foreign rule in Palestine, Jewish elites saw something different in these disparate texts. Not a description of their past, but a promise of their future. God who delivered them time after time would do so again through a chosen one, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. This idea was a beacon of hope in a dark time of tyranny and oppression. And so Matthew and Luke go back to the well of the Hebrew Bible over and over to draw those linkages for their readers. As it is written, so it unfolded. And in a couple of striking instances, we feel a strange reversal of this as it is written when Jesus appears as the object of a religious rite, Surely Jesus had no need to be dedicated to God in the temple. Surely Jesus had no need to be baptized. These are the rituals that we non-deities do to align ourselves to the deity. Why should someone who comes from divinity, as Matthew and Luke tell us in the birth stories that only they tell, do these things? Are they done only because it is written like someone performing a scripted line? In today's gospel, we see a very special, as it is written. Jesus is taken to the temple by his parents to dedicate him, designate him, or present him. These are the words used in our translations. The Jewish ceremony, however, is usually described with the word redeem. The firstborn male of a Jewish woman had to be bought back redeemed from the priesthood service that was his obligation. So now the weirdness of the ritual where Jesus is the object gets even weirder. Jesus, the Redeemer, is redeemed. And this is where I get reminded of my favorite theologian, Karl Barth, a Swiss pastor who openly opposed the Nazis in the 1930s. We tend to read these moments guided by the gospel writers as signs. That is, unlike our baptism, the baptism of Jesus didn't do anything to him. It didn't fix anything or change Jesus. Jesus did it for a sign or to bear witness. But Barth takes these moments more seriously, maybe even more literally. What if Jesus was redeemed? Not just in a ritual way, but in the same way all humans are redeemed by God. What if, in fact, Jesus is the first redemption, the primary redemption, through which all other redemptions are made possible? I feel like if we entertain this possibility, it starts us down the road toward a far more radical theology about Jesus. We tend to set Jesus apart from ourselves, put him in a special category. And while that prompts us to listen to him as one with authority, it also enables us to bracket his message as a divine and timeless word coming to us across the vast, trackless gulf between earth and heaven. Simeon and Anna, connecting the baby Jesus in front of them with the scriptures they studied and the temple they served, were not responding to something far away and outside of their context. They celebrated because the longed for deliverance was literally cradled in their arms. It was real and it was right now. We think of Jesus as confounding the expectations, exploding the categories of those he came in contact with and that's true. But it's also the case that he fit the categories that he appeared in the prescribed rituals, that he never held himself above what we all undergo. God's anointed one arrived just as Simeon and Anna expected, a human being. Years ago, I went to a workshop in California with a few dozen other theologians from across the country. One of the questions posed to us was drawn from President Obama's first presidential campaign we were asked, are we the ones we've been waiting for? I watched in horror as these revered theological figures whose books I'd read, whom I'd written papers about, shook their heads at this question and said, probably not. Now, I was younger then, and I was full of spit and vinegar, and now I'm older, and I'm far less sanguine about history moving onward and upward. But even today, I'm shocked, thinking back on it, at their willingness to pass on the responsibility to the next generation. The message of the Messiah is not that we have to wait for demographic replacement or for regime change. The God that Jesus revealed does not write off the present. That God transforms people, all people, any people, That God delivers us, not someday, but now. If the one we're waiting for is always in the future, then we're not waiting on a person. We're waiting on some cosmic inevitability that will set things right, whether we're on board or not. That's not what Simeon and Anna sang about. They said, the anointed one is here, exchanging the peace. Beside you in the communion line, Worshipping as well as worshipped. The waiting is over. Amen.